Welcome to the Covenant Experience Podcast. At Covenant, we are growing passionate followers of Jesus Christ who serve all people. If you live in the tri-state area, we welcome you to join us on Sundays at 9 a.m. or 11 a.m. You can find more information about us online at covenantexperience.com or call us at 304-876-2212 with any questions. And now, today's message. How are we doing this morning, Covenant? Good to see you. Looking forward to another week in a series called The Return of the King. And we're going to be in Malachi chapter 4 today. And so if you have a copy of God's Word, let me encourage you. We're going to dive a little bit deeper than we normally do because there's a, a piece of, there's some subject matter I think would, it would help us to, to understand a little bit better as we move through this subject matter together. For the most part, things that are common to us are also familiar to us, aren't they? Right? You see a nail, you know what it is. You see a hammer, you know what it is. You see a set of keys, you may not know where they go. Uh, increasingly, as I get older, I find keys around the house. And I don't know what they go to, but I know they go to something, right? I know what it is. But on occasion, you're going to encounter some things that are common, but they're not familiar. You see them all the time. They seem to pop up everywhere, and you may wonder, what does this mean? Uh, along German Street here in Shepherdstown, there are these neon animals. Anybody know what I'm talking about? All right, a few of you do. The rest of you are like, yeah, I'm clueless. Well, one evening as the sun's going down, just drive down German Street and pay really close attention. You'll see cats, you'll see elephants, you'll see, I don't know, all manner of, of animals. And, and here's the thing. I drove past those things. I've been living in this town now for five years plus, and I didn't know what they meant. It really didn't matter a whole lot to me. But my wife, who's a little bit more curious than me, went researching I, which I would not recommend because there are some X-rated urban legends, and so you don't do that. But you can trust me today. I'm going to tell you, we did some searching, and we finally found the answer. And you can trust what I'm telling you today, and I'm going to tell you why. Because my source is Facebook. So you know it's true, okay? You know it's true. So, so this is what I've heard about those, about those neon animals, that sometime back there was a protest. No big surprise to me. This little town loves a good protest no matter what the subject, and it was against apparently some kind of city ordinance against neon signs in businesses. Apparently there was a business in town that was forced by code enforcers to take that sign down. And so as a manner of protest, rather than get together next to the library like they normally do and shake their signs and do their thing, they decided we're going to take some neon signs and we're going to put them in residential places because the law can't do anything about that. that there's something quite Americana about that, isn't it? Like, you know, we're just going to rebel. And so they did it. And so when you're driving from that moment forward, I've known this for a couple of years now, every time I drive down German Street and it's getting close to dusk and I see some neon start to turn on, you know what I remember? I remember the story of protest. I remember now. Now, here's the thing. That, that story really doesn't make any difference to me, right? I know more now about those things that were common but unfamiliar that are now both common and familiar but, but I, I, it hasn't changed my life. But occasionally, there's something that's common, but for years and years and years is somewhat unfamiliar. And once it becomes familiar, you are never, ever the same. And that is absolutely the truth when it comes to this phrase, the day of the Lord. If you're a Bible reader, casual Bible reader even, but you never really dove, dove deeply into the meaning of this, you're looking at this text and you probably wondered a hundred times or more, 
what does this mean? Because if you're a regular reader of Scripture, you've driven past this phrase multiple times, more than 80 times, in fact, in the Scripture. Generally, it refers to any kind of moment in which God intervenes on behalf of his people or he's about to judge his enemies. But then when you examine the various ways that this is applied, you realize that it addresses any number of events in the Old Testament. So, for example, in Isaiah 2, again in Isaiah 13, it refers to a future judgment on Babylon. The day of the Lord is coming to you because of your defeat and enslavement of the, my people Judah. Then in other texts, uh, judgment is predicted to come on Israel herself. We looked at one of those texts, actually, back during a previous series, uh, Amos chapter 5. He says, you're looking forward to the day of the Lord because you, like a lot of religious people, you're thinking that it has to do with your enemies and you just can't wait for God to come down here and zap your enemies using whatever means possible. And of course, Amos says, what is the day of the Lord to you? It will be darkness and not light. That was his way of saying to Israel, you're actually going to be on a different side of this battle than you think. And the reason is because you oppress the poor and you take bribes and you live unjust lives. And you really should not look forward to this day because it's going to consume you as well. But then the closer we get to the new covenant and its inauguration, the more we begin to see this culminates in the coming of Jesus. And even in our day, sometimes it's his first coming, sometimes it's his second coming. And the text we're looking at today actually speaks to both his first and his second coming. So I want us to do a little deeper dive today because this word day of the Lord has much to say about what we've been studying around the return of the king. It has much to, to challenge us with in terms of our preparation for that day. And so I, I think it just behooves us to understand it a little better. Malachi is one of the last, he actually is the last of the Hebrew prophets. If you were to look at your Old Testament in Hebrew, it's actually in a, a pretty radically different order than your English Bibles. A lot of history behind that is I don't have time to go into today. But, but one thing it holds in common is Malachi is the last book. It's the last book in English. It's the last book in Hebrew. And, and so God, before kind of shutting the radio off here for four centuries, wants to say some things to his people because they're breaking the Sabbath. They're ignoring the tithe. They're not investing in each other, the faith community. And they're once again intermarrying with people outside their faith, which is compromising their own faith. And the prophet identifies the reason this behavior is continuing. He says, it's because you're living for the moment. The Latin phrase we use even to today to describe this in the modern age is that word carpe diem, seize the day. It, it, it's a philosophy of life that says, you know, grab it, get everything you can today. Even one of my favorite country songs says, come here, baby, give me a kiss. Like tonight is all there is. There's more to it than that. But that's the one that kind of, I, I just kind of go, ooh, ooh, no, no. That's so, that's such an underdeveloped understanding of the end. It's so much better than that. But God's people aren't living like that's true. And so what, what Malachi is reminding them of is death inaugurates another realm of existence that you apparently, by virtue of the life you're living as is evidence to that, you're not thinking about that next life. Your today should be lived in light of that tomorrow. That's the question. Are you living today in light of not Monday morning when you got to go back to work, not a couple weeks from now when your kids are back at school, not, not, not that you don't need to plan for those things and be wise and make good decisions, but are you living ultimately in light of another day? Another day. A day that Malachi describes here. So let me, let me give you four challenges that I think rise out of this prophecy. The first is this. The day of the Lord 
challenges us to prepare for a separation. Verse 1, For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness shall rise with healing in his wings. You shall go about leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. So as you can already tell, this is one of the more visceral descriptions of a great separation that's also described elsewhere. In Scripture, we hear it in the voice of John the Baptist when he says in Matthew 3, his winnowing fork is in his hand and he will clear his threshing floor, gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. And then in Matthew 25, from the words of Jesus himself, these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. So what we have collectively rooted in Malachi, catapulted forward into the new covenant for us, is this picture of the whole world distinctly gathered up and split into two groups. And just as certain as there is a God in heaven, there's a separation between those two groups coming. And these are not empty threats. They're aimed at the people with the following characteristics. Number one, they're arrogant, proud, insolent, presumptuous. James reminds us that God exalts the humble, but he, he opposes the proud. In the end, that opposition is going to reach a zenith, and God's wrath will be poured out against those individuals. They are, secondly, evildoers. Their actions reveal a heart that is separated from God. And for those people, the end of the age means they will be set ablaze and the metaphor given here is that that blaze is going to be so intense, nothing will be left of them. This is where we got to be a little careful. You don't want to read this too literally. Otherwise, you end up in a place where you start thinking the whole soul and all of our existence itself begins to be annihilated. Scripture doesn't really teach any such thing if we take it as a whole. I think the better way to understand what Malachi is saying here is as metaphor. He's describing something that should be encouraging to us. It is the total and complete removal of evil from the presence of God. There is evil in the world. There is evil in the human soul. And on the day of the Lord, that evil will be extracted and it will be destroyed to the extent that there won't even be ashes left. All of the evil in the world, the, the embodied evil of enemies, the, the natural evil of everything from natural disasters, ecological disasters, to things that attack our bodies, diseases, all these kinds of things. All of that will go away. And then right on the heels of that comes these words of encouragement. For you who fear my name, the son of righteousness will rise with healing in his wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. Three pictures of what the end means for the righteous, if you belong to Jesus. Number one is a rising sun. And we're going to see that metaphor again here in just a couple of verses. There is light where there once was darkness. You're like, why is this happening? What's going on? I don't know. I can't see. There's a curtain. God's going to pull it back one day. There's not a place in the universe where all of the light of God's truth will not shine one day. Light where there was once darkness. Healing. That's the second thing we see. Restoration of everything that sin has stolen from you and me. Now, sometimes we can... We can go too far. Sometimes we don't go far enough with this idea of healing. Isaiah reminds us it is by his stripes that we are healed. We believe that at Covenant. 
That's why just this week, I and one of the other pastors went to the home of one of, one of our dear sisters who's suffering chronically from some stuff, and we laid hands on that individual, and we prayed for that individual because James tells us that the prayer of faith will heal. We believe that here. In fact, we've seen it here, so we'd be fools not to believe that God doesn't on occasion miraculously heal. And when he does choose to do those things, what he's doing is not bringing the ultimate healing that's being promised here. Because here's, here's the thing. If, if you get cancer, we come over and lay hands on you and pray for you, and God heals you. We're going to give him glory and praise him and have a big party, and we're going to testify to the greatness of God. And then at some point in the future, you're going to die. Right? That, that's going to happen. Death rate's still one per person. It's still, except for one, undefeated. Okay, so that's coming. So even when he does temporarily heal in this world, it is but a glimpse of what Malachi is talking about here. A moment when you will not only be made whole, but every possibility for that wholeness being compromised is eliminated forever. It's done. Everything you've had taken from you, everything that was taken from my mother's mind for the five years from the time she was diagnosed until she was taken from us in October, this bad eyesight that I suffer with and have since I was five years old. Some of you have chronic pain or maybe there's past trauma that still wakes you up at night or there's disabilities that some of you have been forced to live with. All of it gone. John describes it in this way in Revelation 21. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning or crying or pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. Rising sun, healing. And what other result could there be from those two than leaping? You ever seen a calf turn loose from a stall? That's exactly what Malachi is talking about here released from the freedom of bondage. And if you're normal like the rest of humanity or like your pastor, and you're in a moment of pain right now, you may be asking yourself, well, why, why not now? Like, now's as good a time as any. You may be a person who's asked, and it's a legitimate question. If God really is holy and simultaneously powerful, and he can do something about this, why doesn't he? I had to respond to a family tragedy this week. Not, not someone in our church family, but members of this community. And I've, I've ministered through, and as, as have some of you, had to be kind of agonized through different kinds of diseases, people taking their own life, people overdosing. I, I sat down on my deck yesterday morning, opened up the Washington Post. There was an article in there from Peter Jameson on the front page of the Washington Post about Martinsburg, West Virginia. I was simultaneously happy to see it because the issue he was talking about needs exposure. It's opioid addiction. I was simultaneously saddened because this area is so much more than opioid addiction. The people in this area are so much more than the way we are sometimes caricaturized, caricatured on the national level because of the fact that we're literally at ground zero of that plague. And this whole tug of war between opioids and COVID that's happened over the past year, year and a half, my heart broke. As I read that, and I just closed my eyes and I started to pray, and I have never in my life been persecuted, not, not even close, but sometimes you feel the weight of a world 
kind of like that, that article was describing, you know, you've got people who don't need to be isolated, but then this pandemic comes along and now everybody has to be. And so what do you do? And you're jumping back and forth and you're trying to figure it out. And you're literally like you're the Dutch boy with your finger in the dam. You poke it here and the water comes out here. And, and, and the, if you're living this stuff and you're completely honest, you know that your, your friends on social media and the pundits on the news media, that they make this to be a whole lot simpler than it really is. The world is broken. And sometimes there are things that just can't be fixed. And so I felt a little something, I think, of what those martyrs in Revelation 6 sense, not, not their pain, not their persecution. I've never felt anything like that in my life, but something of their desperation when they cry out, how long, O oh Lord? How long? When are you going to bring relief? When does this healing come? When does it come? One day he will. And we are told, have faith. Have faith. That day is described here. And it describes only two possibilities for everybody that's hearing me right now. Just two. On the day of the Lord, the righteous will begin their healing. And they'll be removed from all the wickedness and all the evil in the world forevermore. On the day of the Lord, the punishment for the wicked is just getting started. Which is it going to be for you? You've driven past this text, this phrase, time after time in the Bible. You've wondered what it meant. This preacher now is explaining to you what it meant. Maybe you didn't need me to explain it. Maybe you did some digging on your own. Maybe even years ago, you know what it meant. Time after time after time, you have come across this phrase. You now know what it means. And if ever there was a necessity for you to be, as our culture now says, on the right side of history, this would be the moment. What's it going to be? You need to prepare for a separation. Secondly, you need to anticipate restoration. Verse 2, but for you who fear my name, the son of righteousness will rise with healing in his wings, and you shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. Uh, Like I said, the son here is, is a metaphor. It's not an inanimate object. It's a person. He's talking about God himself. How do I know that? Well, because of the next phrase, he comes with healing in his wings, now that phrase is used a lot of different ways. Hebrew is a very fluid language, by the way. It's very context-dependent. So if you look at this word in Genesis 1, it's just the wings on a bird. If you look at it in Isaiah 6, it's the wings on those fiery guardians called the seraphim, the, the holiest place in the temple. It's also used in some places to describe the extremity of a garment, the end of a sleeve, something along those lines. But in Psalm 139, we're told this, if I take the wings of the morning, all right, that, that's a figure of speech that's talking about sunrise. The wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. So in, in the ancient Near East, it was common to describe sunlight rising like the wings of a bird. And he said, that this is going to be the Lord. You take all the ways this phrase is employed together, the Lord is coming, and when he comes, he will bring in his possession Healing, complete, not just physical, spiritual, emotional, shalom. Everything will be whole. In other words, and if you belong to Jesus, you've experienced this and are experiencing it right now, maybe in little bitty digestible chunks, but you're getting there on an individual level, all right? Some of you experience the difference, right? You get up in the morning and you look, and the the, the morning before you got up and you looked, and you look pretty much the same, right? But if you didn't look in the mirror for a year, you'd notice some changes. This is why you're shocked in recent weeks when the masks come off and you look at your neighbor who you've been familiar with for years and you go, oh, 
right? Right? Because they look different, right? They look different. They've gained weight. They've lost weight. They've aged. Somebody, because if you look at it that way, and so it's, it's almost imperceptible what God is doing in your life individually like that because you live with it every day. But let me tell you what God is doing to you on the individual level that matches what, what Malachi speaks of here on the universal level. Salvation is spoken of in our Bible overwhelmingly in three overarching parts. The first is called justification. This is when you are declared righteous by God on the basis of Jesus' death for your sin, bearing the wrath of God for your sin, rising again so that you can have eternal life. On the basis of that alone, not on the basis of any of your works, lest any man should boast, salvation is by grace, through faith, legally now you are declared innocent as though you had never sinned, which positionally puts you into a characteristically different relationship with God. All right. Usually when we talk about people getting saved, that's what we're talking about. We're talking about that phase of the process of God redeeming a person. He has justified you. You've now become a Christian, but you're just getting started. The, the next phase of this is called sanctification. Your salvation is being worked out. You're becoming more like Jesus. And in the process, slowly, sometimes again, even imperceptibly in your own mind, that's why, that's why you need community. That's why you need small groups. That's why you need the church. So that people can testify back to you things that might be imperceptible to you because you live with yourself all the time, and they don't. But when they see you every week, they can start to tell some of these things. And in the process, you're being delivered from the power of sin. The power of sin. Some of you, maybe it's anger. Some of you, it's lust. Some of you, it's substance abuse or something along those lines. And you just... You just kind of notice, and other people notice that are around you in community, hey, you, you are not the same as you were before. You're witnessing at that moment on an individual level just a slice of what Malachi is promising us comes to the whole universe one day. But then that process has an end. It's glorification. So if justification is I'm, I'm removed from sin's penalty, I, I don't have to suffer anymore because of my sins eternally. If sanctification is I'm re being re removed from the power of sin, it doesn't have power over me anymore, I can live the way God intended me to live. Glorification means I get finally removed from the presence of sin. And I now am everything God intended me to be. And sometimes that comes through the hardships of life. Sometimes it comes through sickness. Sometimes God uses things like the thorn in the flesh that he gave to Paul. Sometimes God uses, some, and we in the West have a, we have had it so good for so long, we have a woefully underdeveloped theology of suffering, which is why the moment we begin suffering, we reflexively just want to stop suffering. Some of that is because we're normal, but some of it is because We've been conditioned by our culture to think that following Jesus, I don't know where we got this from, we certainly didn't get it from the words of Jesus, that, that we're not supposed to feel this way, we're not supposed to experience these things. And you may wonder, what's going on? Listen to these words from C.S. Lewis. I love the way he describes this in his book, Mere Christianity. He says, imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps, you can understand what he is doing. He is getting the drains right and stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. And you knew that these jobs needed doing, and so you are not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abdominally and does not make any sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he is building a quite different house from the one you thought of. 
throwing out a new wing here, putting on an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were being made into a decent little cottage. He is building a palace. And he intends to come and live in it himself. Why is he doing this? Because he's building something better. And you have to believe that it is out of his love that he is building something better. Some of you are chronically ill. Some of you have autoimmune diseases. Some of you are suffering from what we are now calling long COVID. Some of you have diabetes that you're having a hard time getting control of it. Some of you sitting here right now and you suffer from deep emotional and other wounds from trauma you suffered because you put on our nation's uniform and went to some God-awful place and saw things and experienced things. God, God forbid, even had to participate in things that you will never forget on this side of eternity at least. And you're wondering, when will I be able to escape this? And for some of you, that violence, you didn't have to go very far because it's in your own house. Or at least it has been. Some of you have mental illness and it torments you. The day of the Lord, every time you drive by it, slow down just a little bit, take a peek, take a deep breath when you're going through anything and remember that that day, 80 plus times in the Word of God, reminds you that a day is coming, a full, final, total, irreversible, eternal restoration. But it only comes on one condition. You have to persevere in righteousness. Verse 4, remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. In other words, you remember the law, right? To know God is to follow God. To follow God is to obey God's law. Israel, by the way, was prohibited explicitly from separating the idea of following God from following God's law. In the Jewish mind, they were one and the same, which means... Follow me now. In the Jewish mind, following God and following God's law are one and the same. If that was true for the Jewish mind and Jesus was a Jew, you following me with this syllogism? It was true for Jesus. It is therefore true for Jesus' followers, which means it's not about rules. It's about relationship. It's stupid. Okay? Now, follow me here. Follow me. I, I'm not... Preaching a work salvation here, but you got you to pay attention here, okay? It's not rules, it's relationships. You even know that in your human relationships, that that don't make no sense. You know it does. We were on vacation out west several weeks ago, went into a Bass Pro Shops, because for a guy in his late 40s, that's like a candy store, right? And so I'm going in there, and I don't even fish, but somehow or another, I end up among the fishing boats. And I, I, I like to fish, I just never, for whatever reason, I never make time to do it. And so I'm in the fishing boat, and I came across, you know, Bass Pro makes their own private label, Bass Tracker. Like the fish just leap in the boat, guys. That's, that's why you spend them. You tell your wives that when you go home today. And so this thing was beautiful. It, it was just bright. Like, I've never seen gray and thought that's beautiful. But this boat, the hole underneath the bottom was gray, and I thought, that's beautiful. That's beautiful. 160 horsepower Johnson outboard. Yeah, buddy. Candy apple red, top coat with a glitter finish, which is absolutely resistible to rednecks. I'm just saying. And so, so I'm, I'm looking at this boat and I'm thinking, I could, you know what? I'd make time for fishing if I had this boat. You know, I can do it. Now, I don't know, get, get it, I don't know how we're going to hitch it to the, we got a rental vehicle. We flew out here. I don't know. I guess they'll have to ship it. Gosh, that'll be another 10 grand. And then I, and then I looked at the price tag, $74,000. 
Guys, I own three automobiles, and if you add the value all up together, it don't add up to $74,000. Now, now imagine with me that I decide on a wild hair, because, because Amy, I don't know where Amy and Grace were. They were off somewhere else at that point. I was with my boys, and uh, if, I'd, if I'd called a salesman over and started filling out paperwork, and then I didn't say anything to Amy, and it just, it, now, in the event that this has actually transpired in this room, I'm not preaching to you, but if your wife is elbowing you right now, yeah, that was stupid, boy. That was stupid, brother. You don't do something like that, right? Just, just imagine I do that, and my boy's are like, what are you doing, Dad? I'm like, Shh, just don't tell your mother. And then we, we sign the papers, and then three weeks later, this bass boat shows up in our front yard, along with a bill that has the terms of payment on it, for a note of $74,000. Do you think Miss Rainey would react okay if she looked at me and said, honey, aren't we supposed to talk about like all major purchase? If I just said, baby, it's not about rules. It's about the relationship. One of y'all going to have to open up a bedroom if that happens, right? I mean, this is a, we know this is stupid. It's not about rules. It's about, it, you're talking about a relationship with the sovereign ruler of heaven and earth. Of course it's about rules. But follow me, that's not all. That's not all. I'm not telling you it's work salvation. Sure does sound like work salvation. Well, keep listening. Keep listening, okay? Because I'm, number one, let's, let's just reinforce this with the words of Jesus in Matthew 5. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Okay? Jesus was speaking about something here that our Jewish friends call the Tanakh. Three, three letters there, the T, the N, and the K. The T stands for Torah. That's the law. Navim is the prophets. Ketavim, that's the writings. And here in, here in Malachi, the focus is on Torah, the law of Moses. And he says, you need to remember this. You need to remember the law. Later in the Psalms, we read this. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. His delight is in the law of the Lord. Think about that. And, and, and contrast that against even those of us who call ourselves Christians, the, the disposition that we're so often tempted towards, right? You go home tonight, you're tired. Tomorrow night, let's just say that, you're, you're home from work, you're just beat, and you think to yourself, really should read my Bible. I really should, I really should invest myself in what God has to say to me. I, I have, but, but rather than think, you know, I have, as a literate person living in the West, up to 3,000 years after the fact, a written record that I can access anytime I want to. I don't have to wait on it. And it is the very word of God. God has revealed himself to me in words that I can access anytime I want. And to have a disposition that says, well, I guess I better read it because he said I'm supposed to read it. But I'd really rather Netflix binge, I don't know, is Game of Thrones back on Prime? Like, is there something there? I, I'd really rather scroll Facebook because 
you know, when I compare myself with my friends, you know, it always gives me a good feeling. I, maybe I should turn on the news because every time I watch Tucker Carlson, I just get so calm, you know, and cool. And I, I and you just got to ask, like, what? There really is something wrong with us, isn't there? It really is. Like, we have the word. This, this, what's being described here should be, but it's not, is it? Not duty, delight. I get to do this. But here's what we also know. Okay? This is why this is not work salvation. No one since our father Adam has ever delighted in God or his law on their own. Ever. Romans 3. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All you have to do is follow the law. It is a relationship. He wants a relationship with you. Yes, relationships have rules. Of course they do. For the same reason you shouldn't cheat on your spouse, you shouldn't cheat on God. But that's the problem, isn't it? All you got to do is follow the law. You can't. Imagine being a starving, orphaned child locked outside a buffet restaurant with ceiling-to-floor glass walls. You can see what will bring you nourishment. There's even some cracks in the, in the panels in that that let some of that scent through. You can smell what is coming through there. You can hear the sound of people and the joy that sharing in a meal brings them. You can feel the warmth on the other side of that wall, but you can't access any of it. You can see it, but you can't have it. That's what the law does for you and for me. It reveals like a panel of glass from ceiling to floor, everything God expects of us. And then we learn often the hard way through the experiences of life that you and I are impotent to remember it, to keep it, to obey it. So no, this isn't a work salvation. Remember the law, it's not a work salvation because it's rooted in a, in a sense of progressive history that does not end with Malachi. It culminates with Jesus. Brothers and sisters, the good news is not that you and I can just obey the law and we'll be fine because we can't. The good news is that 400 years after these words are penned, another man will come down, the next and the final word of God, and he will obey perfectly on your behalf and mine this law of God. And I love the way Paul puts this in Galatians, the way this works itself out with me. Am I required to follow the Word of God? Yes, rules are part of this relationship. Can I do it by myself? Absolutely not. So where's my hope? Look at Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me, right? Not a works-based, legalistic, God mean all the time, waiting on you to mess up so he smacks you over the head not not this libertine you know say that i'm going to heaven even though i live like hell do whatever in the hell i want all this kind of i'm going to live my life i'm going to do this and i'm going to get that and it's all about me neither one of those neither one of those crucified with christ the life i now live in the flesh i live by faith in the son of god who loved me and gave himself for me you want the day of the lord to be a day of hope and restoration for you come to jesus Come to Jesus and tether yourself to him. See, the, the fulfillment of this Old Testament promise, it doesn't come through setting up boundaries and doing everything I can not to cross the boundaries or the reverse side of legalism. Let me see how close I can get to the boundaries, right? Let me see how close. It comes from tethering yourself to a center who will not let you cross those boundaries. 
Because those cross those boundaries is not good for you. And who will give you his righteousness and empower you to persevere to the end. And when he does that, you'll be able to do this last thing. You'll be able to live in hope. Look at verse 5. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Now, back in chapter 3, verse 1, Malachi had announced a forerunner to Messiah. And we know from the New Testament that who he was talking about there. It was what we, the guy we typically call John the Baptist. Okay? Jesus, older, burlap-wearing, bug-eating, rough-around-the-edges, stinky cousin. That, that's who that was. But be careful when you're reading this text to just assume that the same Elijah here is being described there. The tone here is different, for one. For hundreds of years, the Jews at this point, they've been speculating about the return of Elijah. Who will he be? Will we recognize him? And then in Matthew 17, Jesus leads the disciples up to what you and I now know as the Mount of Transfiguration, something our worship team sang about earlier. And there, Moses and Elijah appear with him on top of that mountain. And the disciples who bear witness to this are so overwhelmed that they're ready to put up a church house, like right there. So captivated are they that even 60 plus years later, Peter will write about this in his second epistle, 2 Peter 1.16. And he identifies that experience as a preview of Jesus' future exaltation as the fulfillment of both the law and the prophets. And 400 years prior to that moment, Malachi had spoken these words telling us that that moment would come eventually. And we know on these bases there's yet another moment coming. The Mount of Transfiguration, that's just a precursor. That's just a little taste of what's coming. Jesus, the Elijah-like figure, returns to establish his kingdom and reconcile everything to himself. You know, one of the raging debates around the end of the age for about the last 80 years or so comes when it comes to debating about this, the role of, the, of, of Israel. And that happens on a couple of different levels. Number one is ethnic Israel. Wherever they live, whatever nation they may be citizens of, they are Jewish by ethnic lineage, are Jewish uh, friends. What, what, what role do they play, if any? Uh, the, the other level of that is this modern nation state of Israel that came back into, into existence in, in the 1940s. Uh, we'll, we'll unfold that a little bit. We won't get too deeply into that. But, but hopefully you've noticed at least the obvious. You know, I, I told you the first few weeks of this, we want to talk about what's obvious. What is it that the church by consensus has agreed on roughly for the last 2,000 years in near unison? And this is one of those things. Whatever Israel's role is, we know what it's not. She is not our ultimate hope. She's not. Paul put it this way in Galatians 3.16. Now the promises were made to Abraham and his offspring. It does not say offsprings, plural, referring to many, but referring to one. And to your offspring. Who is that, Joel? We'll keep reading. Who is Christ? Even in the Old Testament, Israel was not to look to herself. She was to look to Messiah, an ultimate, final person who would emerge out from her. A son of Abraham, Malachi says, is going to come. He's going to live in perfection. He's going to die as a substitute. He's going to rise from the dead. He's going to ascend to his father. And one day he's going to come and bring with him the full realization of his kingdom. That's your hope and mine. 
And every time again you drive by this phrase, the day of the Lord, and you're reading a scripture, you need to think of that and be encouraged. That truth is given to us so that whatever we face in this life, we can know that future is coming. Live in hope, brother and sister. Live in hope. Not everybody, even who understands what this means, can live in hope. G. Campbell Morgan, the late British preacher, Bible teacher, died in 1945, but so much of his wisdom and teaching remains with us. And he used to note that many Jewish rabbis will stop reading Malachi after verse 5. Did you know that? They don't typically finish the book. They stop one verse early. And that the reason for this is that some of them, not all of them, but some of them are really uncomfortable about the way it ends. I can't say I blame them. Nothing quite as depressing as having the words utter destruction as the last two words of your holy book. That's pretty depressing. And it would be depressing if that were the end. But Malachi is not the end. It's not the end. And because Malachi is not the end, Malachi's message is not hopeless for anybody. It doesn't have to be, at least. It anticipates deliverance, and today it helps you and me get ready for the future that God is bringing, and it tells us that that day can be a day of rejoicing, but it also might be a day of mourning, and it all depends on whether you are found among the righteous or the wicked. So let me give you five challenges in closing here. I'm going to move really quickly, and then we'll be done. Number one, live your life today, not with carpe diem, but in light of his first coming. Jesus says in Luke 19, 13, engage in my business until I come back. There's some things you have to do, okay? So we're not just, we're not, we're not seize the day because tomorrow we may die. We're also not seize tomorrow and, and, and just live recklessly because Jesus is probably coming soon. And we, well, we don't know. I think I've mentioned that a few times, right, in this series. We don't know. And so live, by the way, read 2 Thessalonians sometime this week. This is why Paul wrote that letter. He wrote 1 Thessalonians to give them hope in the second coming. And then he had to write a second letter to tell them to get a job. All right? Because they were, oh, well, if he's coming back, I'll just sell everything and live recklessly and do it. Right? Live in light of the first coming. Engage in the business of your father. Profess him as Lord. Live as though he really is who he says he is. Number two, accept the uncertainties. Not just around the second coming, but just around life in general. Not even Jesus knows the hour of the day. If we can't know everything that's going to transpire or how it will, we certainly cannot know what our own lives are going to involve. So maybe we should stop arguing so much about the first and stop worrying so much about the second. And yes, I just hit myself with that. I just had an existential crisis this week looking at some things, thinking about my family, thinking about things a father should think, think about. Thinking about responsibilities that a husband and a father should take for himself. But, but letting myself get to a point where I almost went outside my mind, where I almost forgot my kids aren't really mine. They're on loan to me from God. So I'll do the best I can, and then I'm going to sleep at night like God is sovereign. All right? That's what he's talking about. Accept the uncertainties. Number three, encourage each other. We've already seen 1 Thessalonians 4. That's what this teaching is for you're going to face hardship sometimes. Some of you are facing it right now, and you might just need your neighbor sometime, maybe even right now. And it's fine if you want to do it right now. If you want to wait a little later, that's fine too. But you might, you, you never know what kind of a blessing you're going to be just by doing something as simple as just looking at your neighbor and giving them a smile and saying this, not much longer. Not much longer. Number four, don't lose hope. 
He's coming. He's coming. You see how important this is? The second coming of Jesus? Right? At the beginning of this, I said, I got two groups of people. I got people that treat the second coming like a sugar high. You know, they go prophet after prophet after prophet and fail prophecy after fail prophecy after fail prophecy, and they're doing junk theology on YouTube, and they're just, it's just crap. But then there's another group that's jaded by all the, all the Hal Lindsey, Jack Van Impey crap, and they, they don't want to hear anything about it. You're going to miss something if you don't hear about this. This is where your hope lies. Not in your past or your present, but in your future. Live in that hope. And then finally, and this is Joel's opinion, but I'll tell you why I'm right next week. Because <laughs> there, there, there are some questions like, is, is there anything left? Like, what, what are we waiting on here? I'm going to go ahead and put my cards on the table and, and tell you where Joel's at right now. Live as though he could come back today. Because he could. He could. The day of the Lord is approaching. Are you ready? Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that even in the final words that our dear Jewish friends have given us in the Hebrew Scriptures that, that may seem so gloomy and may seem so full of destruction, when they are filled with the wider context of your sovereign will over all of history and your promises all encapsulated in this phrase, the day of the Lord, there is great hope in them. And so, Lord, I pray that your people, your sons and daughters, would live as though they are your sons and daughters today. And I pray that they would take that hope in you. If there's someone who doesn't have that hope, may they come and bow the knee to Jesus today. May they receive him as Lord and Savior. And may they begin that process of being freed from the power and ultimately from the presence of everything that ails them, of their sin. Father, I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me ask you to stand. Our deacons and elders are going to begin to gather around these crosses. There are four of them around this building. And if you need to respond today to receive the Lord Jesus, we would love for you to get ready for the day of the Lord and leave here with a hope that you didn't come in here with. That would be our great delight. I'm going to be down here as well with my mic turned off, ready to receive you. But this is the moment where whatever your need, come to us. We'll cry with you. We'll counsel with you. We'll pray with you. Be obedient to the Lord as we sing.
forward to this future that we've talked about. Lord, envelop us in your love in this very moment. Deliver us from anxiety, from fear, from a lack of hope. And Lord, may we leave here today with our heads a little bit higher, not because of anything within ourselves, but because we serve a sovereign God who has promised to remove the evil and the sin and all of its effects from this world. And we're going to live in faith from this moment forward that that day is coming. In Jesus' name, amen. Hi, everybody. Pastor Joel here, and I am so glad you stopped by. I pray this podcast helps you in your walk with God. And if you're listening with questions about faith of any sort, God is not afraid of those questions, and neither are we. Join us any Sunday morning at 9 o'clock or 11 o'clock in the morning. If you're new to our area and looking for a church home, I hope we'll see you soon and have the opportunity to welcome you properly and personally through our doors. And if you live in the tri-state area, but you're already a part of one of the other phenomenal church families here, I pray this podcast has been a great addition to the primary teaching you already received from your local pastor and that you've been better equipped to serve your own church family. So let's all go make Jesus famous this week. Share his love every chance you get until we meet again. And God bless you.